officer, Andrea Isom. Isom is a 15-year veteran, currently assigned to homicide. Instructor at Basic Academy, co-founder of Tab 7, is a twin brother. She's a dog mom, she describes herself that way. A proud Husker alone from Nebraska. She's very passionate about adventure and travel. Congratulations. Thank you so very much for this award. Um, I come from a family of public servants, uh, teachers, nurses. My twin brother Alex is here tonight, over there. He's a firefighter because, you know, someone's got to play video games, take naps, and So I think public services kind of always just been my future and I always wanted to be a homicide detective and I've had some of the best detectives working with me to teach me everything. Um, this award I think just means so much because it's from your peers and at the end of the day they're the ones who are with you um, at the academy, getting smoked for the hundredth time, usually by Mike Mata, <laughs> and that was him. Um, they're with you at crime scenes at four in the morning. And you're on your third murder of the night, and you're running on two hours of sleep and a gallon of coffee. So, um, I'm so grateful for the people who came out tonight. All my friends I've known since the Academy days, and my partner, um, Steve, my old trainer, and thankful to my family who supported me. So, thank you very much. Detective Andrea Eisen. If we don't have a lot of witnesses, sometimes you have, you know, like a body dump and you don't even know where to start. And that's when you rely on the ME's office for the autopsy and say, okay, what did they die from? What kind of object am I looking for? How long have they been dead? Um, and just to kind of go backwards. The thing I love about investigations, I guess, is that you never know how a case is going to pop. Like you don't know if it's going to be the magic phone call or if it's going to be a fingerprint or if it's going to be something on a cell phone. And so you want to like do all check all the boxes, cast a very wide net. And then later on, that one thing will come back. And you're like, I'm so glad I tried that because it, you don't know how, it, how it's going to solve. If you have two witnesses in the same car or in the same area, they're influencing each other's statements. It's They're repeating each other as opposed to from their memory. I always tell people in cases, you know, even though we're all in the same room, I'm looking at this corner, you're looking at that corner. So we all have different perspectives, and you may have seen something another witness didn't, and it doesn't mean that you're wrong or he's wrong. It just means that you have a different perspective. So getting those statements from witnesses to be as authentic as possible without influence of each other is so significant, I think. And it can make a huge difference in an investigation. This guy, this terrible human being, he killed his two kids, his wife and himself. And when we got there to the hotel, he had killed them, I think the night before, and then killed himself like right before we all got out there. And he tucked himself in bed with them. So he moved his wife into the side and then he put his arm around everybody and like he put their hands so that they were all like holding hands. And then he shot himself. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. 
Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. A person commits criminal homicide if he intentionally, knowingly, recklessly, or with criminal negligence causes the death of an individual. This is the Texas Penal Code definition of criminal homicide. In 1935, Captain William Fritz was put in charge of the Dallas PD robbery and homicide unit. He was known as a skilled interrogator. He quickly began forming a reputation for the Dallas homicide unit. They were known for their unique Stetson hats and wide dress shirts. The shirts are a tradition that still is used today by detectives in that unit. The Dallas homicide detective job never stops. The stats will show you a lot of change in Dallas from the year 1930, which saw 20 murders, to a time span from 1989 to 1992, the city of Dallas saw nearly 1,700 murders. 1991 was the deadliest with 500. That was during the deadly drug wars when the Jamaicans hit town. The city of Dallas has seen it all. Officers murdered, a president murdered, high-profile serial killers such as the Texas Eyeball Killer, and a more recent serial killer of nursing home patients. The skill and patience to comb over hours of video footage, witness statements, putting together a puzzle from all the cell phone tower pings to DNA to ballistic reports. These puzzles are never easy, and sadly, the city of Dallas has a lot of whodunits. ATO fans, this is Joe King. Today I'm sitting with an expert of puzzles. She joined DPD in 2007, started in the assaults unit in 2013, and joined Dallas Homicide in 2015. To unwind, she enjoys traveling, reading, and not just her case files. She's a baker, and her homicide peers are often lab rats to her culinary skills. She is Bad's 9272. She is Dallas homicide detective Andrea Isom. Andrea, thanks for coming on. Hello, thank you for having me. ATL fans, you're hearing from her. This is her peers talking. One of the best if not the best, Dallas homicide detectives in that unit. They just want my cookies, I think. But or, they, or they just didn't want to do this podcast. <laughs> or that too. I think, yeah, I, I think I got nominated by John because he didn't want to do it himself. No, no John but. wanted to do it, and he had his, he actually has a question. John I, does? He I, he wanted me to ask you. Okay. Why do they call you Miss Ting? Man, that is just John. <laughs> I hate him. He literally, he is the only person that calls me that, and he says it's because I get any Ting I want. Mm-hmm. which is such bs God, you can john. say you can say bullshit it's bullshit yeah. john john yeah. bell does that's bullshit he, he was my old partner I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm i'm well aware he's full of bullshit oh yeah he said in our last episode actually with uh the great bob stern of the ticket all right i did a straw poll of your peers mm-hmm. of who would be a good detective to come on to represent the homicide unit because a lot of our listeners have reached out. They want to hear from Dallas PD's homicide, mm-hmm. which, you know, we're a violent ass city, just like any major city. And your peers, several of them, including John, he said you would be the best Aww. to come on here. That's so su- that's really nice to hear. Well, um, 
you you know, I always like to say your, your reputation isn't what you think of yourself. Mm. Everybody's got their own opinion of themselves, whether it's, yeah. you know, they don't want to come out and admit, admit they're really good at something or they just, some people are just insecure about certain things. Your peers and what other people think of you, that's your reputation. Mm. And I have to say this, working up in legal, seeing all these cases and, and, and working with all you detectives, your reputation is incredible. And, oh, and it's really, you. you know, you know, it's really hard to get some of your peers to say something nice about you. It is. You should hear so, what they say, you know, up there just on the floor. So, yeah. but thank you. That's very yeah. nice. Yeah. You just go with the Miss Ting. Maybe I'll redo the, or I'll redo the intro with, I'm just kidding. I'm well, not going to do that. I mean, you know, my nickname in the Academy was Baywatch and that was from Mike Mata. <laughs> I don't, I'm not shocked by that. Yeah, no. I don't think um, Avery Moore was CT there, and I don't think he ever knew my real name. Like when I saw him, Baywatch. He always, "How's it going, Baywatch?" And that was. They said you had that Pamela Anderson on your desk over there. Yeah, I think yeah. Trace and Ginger did that when I was on Assaults <laughs> or somebody. So there's a lot of nicknames, well, from Smash and stuff like that. Yeah, after this, after this post, we, we may have a lot of a lot more <laughs> Photoshop with your face and, uh, and we'll Pamela Anderson. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. All right. Something. Are you ready to get into this? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Starting off with some easy ones. Mm-hmm. Where'd you grow up? I am from Kansas City, Missouri. So Midwesterner, born and raised, and moved down here after college. So, what was family lo- uh, life like for you there? Um, you know, my parents, they're high school sweethearts, and they're still together. Thirty-nine years of marriage. Um, my family is really close. You know, we always uh, car rides for Christmas and, you know, we'll travel 10, 12 hours, things like that. So family has always been really important. Um, I have a twin brother and a younger sister. So um, they're both still in Missouri. I'm kind of the lone wolf that went out of state. My mom hates that. But yeah. What is your uh, what is your twin do? My twin brother is a firefighter. <laughs> so he gets paid to be asleep. And we, wow. Yeah. We work out. Oh my gosh, he's yeah. always, I caught up on Game of Thrones, I'm like, man, but he's, um, he loves it, like he, you know, he's the only son in our family, and it, when he found firefighting, it really is that camaraderie and that brotherhood, he has friends that are like his brothers, I mean, he's friends of 35 years kind of a thing, so when he got into firefighting, like it really was so good for him, because he's not like a desk kind of a guy, and so being out, doing stuff like that, and he's up for captain right now in his department in Columbia, Missouri. What is his name? Alex Isom. Ah, shout out Alex. What what department is he? Uh, Columbia Fire Department. All right, shout mm-hmm. out Columbia. <clears throat> we'll be sending your PIO this, <laughs> yeah, definitely. this podcast. All right, growing up, what profession did you want to go in? I didn't really know, so when it was time to go to college, I was like, okay, like, what am I going to do? And I hate math and science, so I was kind of like, what doesn't require that? Um, I had a teacher in high school who was a former FBI agent, and I thought that was always kind of badass because she was this kind of little southern older woman and she was an FBI agent, and so I was like, if she can do this, you know. So I saw criminal justice, and I was like, you know, I love like law and order and that kind of stuff. I've always loved puzzle puzzles and so I was like I'll give it a shot but I always thought I was going to go federal I I thought FBI because you see FBI on TV and it's yeah it's FBI so I was like I'm going to do FBI or I'm going to be a homicide detective and so you knew early on this is what you you wanted to be in the in a homicide unit oh yeah I mean I think that like it was you know I like investigations and homicide is like if you can make it in homicide there's not much else you couldn't do it. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like varsity. Like you want to, if you're going to do it, you want to do like the hardest thing you can and be good at it. If you can do that, then like, you know, you earned your stripes, you, you belong there. So. 
homicide is so different because you really don't have, unlike you came from assaults, and mm-hmm. usually in the Dallas PD, they start with, you start in a, like assaults or robbery or mm-hmm. uh, family violence, mm-hmm. and you get a lot of, sk- you gain a lot of skills as for interviewing folks, and then homicide opens or SIU or, or mm-hmm. you know, then you move up there. Yeah. And you, this is unique from you from dealing with assaults mm-hmm. where you, like you had complainants. Yeah. I mean, so like I applied for a lot of different places like property crimes. I, I, I didn't get it. And, you know, you're like, am I ever going to be a detective? And then I got assaults and um, I had a great trainer. Tommy Carroll was my trainer in assaults. And, you know, I love Tommy. I love Tommy. Uh, showed me so much stuff about how to go from street cop to detective. And um, but yeah, people can tell you what happened. And sometimes they're kind of full of it and sometimes they're not. Um, but, you know, assaults, you have the whole gambit of everything from like a little bar fight, someone threatening you to being shot 10 times and somehow surviving um and so you get a lot of different broad kind of cases um but you definitely get the reps in for talking to people and, and doing the, the initial investigation so yeah it i see their caseload oh yeah and it's it is insane we're gonna get in that later mm-hmm. um <clears throat> had you ever been to texas when, before you- I, a couple times so i was down here for the cotton bowl in 2001 with my when i was on dance line with the band and so I performed. Wow. It okay. Was, I didn't get into this. It was, oh, yeah. It was at K-State in Tennessee. And we did not pack warm clothes because we were like, it's Texas. And it snowed. So I was marching in the West End with my pom-poms with three inches of snow on my pom-poms. And I was like, what the hell, Texas? Like, <laughs> Yeah, well, you, now you know. Oh, how yeah. This now is. that I live here. Yeah. I never thought I was going to be moving to Dallas. But, yeah. you know, so I was here when I was, you know, a sophomore or junior in high school, I think. So, yeah. What college did you go to? University of Nebraska. Oh, wow. Go Big Red. T- uh, Tina Schultz will, will love that. Oh, is she a Husker fan? No, no, she, no she, oh, she's from, she's from Nebraska. Oh, I didn't she's realize from that. Iowa, but she, she went to uh, Nebraska, Omaha. I believe oh, UNO? The, yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she played basketball over there. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, she loves it up there. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, it's the a lot, it's very wholesome. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have so many friends from college and my sorority and stuff who are from small town, Nebraska. And like just going up there, I just like my shoulders relax and it's just peaceful and people are just so nice. I don't know. It's, it's that Midwestern. She's from council bluff. Our, uh-huh. you know, so yeah. She, yeah. You know, that's that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, real quick, since we're on that topic, I want to give a, give a shout out to a Cedar Rapids, uh, officer that reached out, uh, I'm, thank you for listening, and definitely thank you for reaching out. It means a lot to me and the other uh, ATL staff that uh, that uh, saw your feedback. Uh, just know we're with you, and you can reach out to me anytime. Thank you. Um, when you were in, were in Nebraska, you, you were still moving towards your goal. You wanted to become a detective. Right, you're getting to law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the first couple of years you have your prereqs and stuff like that, and yeah. so I was like, okay, you know, I wasn't really sure. I was 18, um, but as I got into the higher level CJ classes, I took a serial killer class, I took an organized crime class, um, just really interesting stuff. I remember taking a terrorism class, and I took my textbook on an airplane. And this is like 
not that long after 9-11, probably not the best yeah, idea. No. But, um, but you know, I had one of my teachers knew a serial killer in Kansas City, Bob Bordeaux, I believe. He used to sell her weed. And, <laughs> and so, you know, she was like, yeah, talk to Bob after he did all this stuff. And I was like, that is so cool. I mean, you know, like the psychology of it and just like what's in someone's mind. Did you watch Mindhunters? Oh, I love that yeah, show. I, I read the book. I really hope yeah. it's the second season. I, Third. Or a third, yeah. yeah. Is yeah, there yeah. a third one coming? Yeah, I hope. The, yeah. The second one was dealing over the, the Atlanta child murders. Remember yeah, that? I yeah, do remember that. that, was, that yeah, yeah that, mm-hmm. that's a great show. Oh, it, so oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Um, you look. You read a lot of serial killer books on Earth studies. I mean, some not as much as I'd like, but I've gone to a couple of different, um, you know, case studies and things like that, and I help out. I'm starting to help out with Fletzy with their interview interrogation, which is mm-hmm. um, Palmer and Quirk are involved oh, in that down uh, yeah, there. Who yeah, are I love them. Legendary homicide detectives. <laughs> yep. But, you know, they did they that. Listen. Yeah, do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, John. Um, and Quirk. Uh, but they do the, um, where they go into the jails and they were interviewing suspects about, like, why did you talk and the psychology of interrogation and, like, what did the detective say that pushed you towards it or pulled you from it and we learned from that and so like they were doing like a presentation for several years um i think the first 48 to 360 and something yep. like that with kevin navarro yep. and um it's just such good information for detectives because you can get in the psychology of interrogations like for hours and it's just interesting because so. i would imagine there is a common there is a common theme in, the, in some of these minds that you can pick up on as a detective and mm-hmm. you can kind of i'm not going to say exploit but you can use to your advantage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it is fascinating. I, I honestly, when I was, when I was getting out of high school or in high school, I was always fascinated by like the Zodiac killer mm-hmm. and Ted Bundy and all the, you know, uh, Ed Gein, all mm-hmm. those folks that it, it's very fascinating in those minds. Uh, and just imagine all, all the ones that they, nobody knows about that. They did. Oh my gosh. Ted Bundy went across the country. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. And like, there's something, you know, about, Watching interrogation, especially because you're going in there and you're pretty much selling someone, you know, potentially life in prison or something. But even killers or whoever it is, everyone has something they care about. Everyone has something that's kind of like their button or what draws them in. And so it's kind of tapping into that to like understand the humanity or get them to reason or what have you but it's kind of like patrol when you go in they size you up and you size them up a little bit and so they're thinking they can like outsmart you outwitch you whatever and so it's kind of like a a mind game a little bit kind of like Hannibal Lecter with Clarice yeah exactly all right you when you applied when you get out of college you applied to DPD I applied to DPD in San Francisco PD. Damn. So it couldn't be any further from the Midwest. You were really trying to escape. I just, you know, I went to college. I didn't know anybody. And so I wanted a new experience and I wanted a new city. And I thought California would be cool. I went out there and applied and I passed the first round and everything. But they were like, okay, come back a second time for PT and a third time. And I'm like, I just blew all my college graduation money on this plane ticket. And thank God I didn't you know, nothing against SFPD, but it's so oh. far from home and some of the policies and their prosecution, I think I'd be really disappointed if I had to be constrained in that. So. A lot's changed from yeah. the early 2000s when oh, you're yeah. applying. It's, I couldn't imagine working there now. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, so you applied for Dallas. Mm-hmm. They, they're hiring, pro- and we've talked about it before on this. They mm-hmm. usually knock everything out in one day almost. It was a three day weekend. Three day week, okay. But you know, it's like eight hours from Kansas City. So I drove down. And back then, that was, I was part of the thousand officer push. Yeah. So they had the big hiring bonus and everything like that. So it seemed like a good fit. 
course. Yeah. And it's a big city. You're going to learn. You knew yeah. you probably knew you were going to learn a lot. Yeah. I wanted a big city because I wanted, like, I knew I wanted to have opportunities to go to homicide or different units and like small agencies sometimes, unless someone dies or retires, you're not yeah. getting in there. And so. Or you know somebody. Yeah. 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 We have that here to some degree, but mm-hmm. it's still, there's so many opportunities in the city, in this city. I've seen more movement mm-hmm. in, in a change in these hom- in, all of capers mm-hmm. units, you know, they basically, you know, they, they have turnover all the time and they have more oh, positions yeah. opening up because caseloads getting heavier. And now yeah. the requirements that we have to give evidence over that's quadrupled pretty much. And, oh, gosh, and, it, yeah. and it happened just, you know, a matter of years, mm-hmm. uh, short years. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it takes a long, it, to investigate and file it properly and to gather the evidence and put it in, in one in your, retention system mm. and then get put it in theirs it's there's a lot yeah uh, yeah um but did you hear anything about dallas pd's homicide reputation did you do any history dive into that history i mean i kind of looked into it a little bit i didn't do a ton to be honest i mean i knew obviously about jfk and, and all of that um but beyond that you know i have an uncle that lives in hearst and so i had been here like once or twice before I moved here. Um, but you know, like I like the, the size of the department and, um, I knew that this is a place where you can get reps in, in terms of whatever you want to do. There's, there's not a shortage of that kind of crime, unfortunately, but yeah, everything. And that's why I didn't know, like, you know, if I was going to do homicide directly or I, I didn't know, I just, I knew like, this is a good place to learn. And this is a place to like, really like test your, your skills and what you can do. So, and also if you decided to go to the federal side, yeah, it, it, it is a good, uh, farm system. Really. Yeah. And that was initially my plan was to be a cop for a couple of years mm-hmm. get some experience, go federal. And then the more I stayed here, the more I was just like, but I like, getting in the foot chase and putting the handcuffs off I, on a, I like, you know, um, interviewing the guy. Like, I want to see the case all the way through. And so that's kind of what, to me, we get to have more hands on than federal agents do. And, you know, especially when it comes to murder, because there's not really a federal murder that's used anyway, yeah. very often. So, well, speaking of, speaking of, uh, of foot chases and putting handcuffs on, you started off in South Central. In I trained at Northeast, actually. Okay, Northeast, and yeah. you went to South Central. Yep, okay. I did just my um, training in Little T at Northeast. Okay. And then I was, like, fifth from the end in the bid list, and so it was pretty much South Central yeah. or Southeast, and somebody else in my class wanted Southeast. So I took South Central, and it was such a difference from Northeast. Yeah. Like, And it was my first day solo on Channel 7, I was like, holy shit, because yeah. it's just, just the pace. I mean, and in the geography, but just the culture too. I think there's so different from Northeast to South central. So, yeah. And it's, it's a little different from Nebraska and then going it's a lot to, different it's from a lot, Nebraska. Yeah. yeah. I'd never seen like heroin in my life or, you know, just everything. It was a huge culture shock. So, well, South central has got plenty of heroin. The listeners there. Yeah. Heroin, everything. Yeah. <laughs> Dealer's hero- choice. Yeah. Heroin, yeah. Heroin, everything. But I've seen it. My, last few years on the streets i left in october 16 i got more heroin in those last few years than all the other years combined mm. at southeast mm-hmm. i mean and my last year was done at south central but mm. um yeah south it, it, it's the whole southern it, heroin has gotten so bad in the city yeah um when you got thrown into patrol you have to take you you take on a lot and mm-hmm. you see a lot um well you see a lot of death you you have a lot of uh you see a lot of emotions from Complainants, witnesses, mm-hmm. uh, you see a lot of violence. Yeah. How did that affect you 
when you when you to cope with that um yeah i mean it definitely like i said channel seven I, I think i went on like four different triple murders while i was down there in four years just on my shift when i happened to be working kind of a thing so that kind of gives you an idea of like the murder rate in that division um and and just everything you know arson and and sexual assault and and everything but i had a really good partner in patrol brandon barry who's swat team well i yeah, think he I just know, left oh, swat yeah he just left yeah, yeah. No, shout out brandon yeah, i love barry dude. um but we had such a good time you know we would just listen to music and go get some felony arrest and maybe try to get a 50 if we could and yeah, right. having a good i know <laughs> yeah. like usually it's just more like grabs them to the drive-thru mm-hmm. and um christmas dinner on the you know mdc or whatever in the middle but um having a good partner makes such a big difference because you know you like chit chat about your life while also doing this job and having someone you can really trust and so like we you know became really good friends and hung out after work as well and um it was nice just to have somebody like that that we could you know rely on but yeah yeah well having a good partner that in you mentioned the brotherhood before mm-hmm. in, in our profession, in your in your twins' profession, the yeah. pair in the fire. It is real. So when you're riding around, <clears throat> when you're riding around with somebody for for hours on shift, and y'all, you have to lean on each other so much. So yeah. We got somebody driving. You got somebody working the computer. So you really, you mm-hmm. you're, you really have to have a true partnership. And I've been with people that I just uh, couldn't stand. I couldn't wait for the eight hours to be done. Oh, those are the longest eight hours. When you're with somebody, you're like, uh. Yeah. I, but I, I was really fortunate enough to be in with certain partners. And then also I, I was running with certain groups mm-hmm. of the Pat Star, the Matas, the Jaime uh, mm-hmm. Castro. I mean, I had yeah. I had some badasses around me. And, and mm-hmm. that was really, made it fun. Absolutely. But there also could be they also could be your therapist mm-hmm. yeah, and and you you you're like both of you are sponges and and mm-hmm. you're, you're talking and you're talking about how you on you how you coped with a certain incident you went on yeah. or or whatever home thing you have, may have going on in home life right yeah. mm-hmm. and if you don't but if you're riding with somebody you don't trust it's like going to a ther- if you don't trust a therapist or you don't mm-hmm. trust a program yeah you're not going to you're not going to use it oh yeah and like being in a squad car i mean you're you're 6 feet contained with this other person like you are in a very it's a little different than yeah. like working at office it's a constant I mean, road trip for it, it's eight a constant hours, road hours trip and yeah and you're not getting out of that car for at least eight hours and sometimes when you have an overtime call and you're there all night you know but um but yeah i mean in those days especially when i was in patrol um hanging out with my friends from the academy too we still you know would go have drinks together have dinner go see a movie um at that time you know everybody was still kind of like unmarried and no kiddos yet so it's a little bit easier to kind to hang out more um but that was always good to kind of like trade stories and when you're a rookie you're just like oh my gosh what'd you get into last week and i got this crazy deal and you know you're so just everything's new and shiny and so you just love that you know i used to get mad when i would like scott mcdonald or somebody would call or they'd say they'd get into a house and i wasn't there for it. i'd get yeah, pissed. oh my I'd, gosh i get yes. mad oh, know, absolutely Especially like a cool case. You're like, how did you get on that? I was stuck doing this stupid report and now I missed out on like the coolest case or whatever. But what's so funny is is being a young officer, you you know, there's, uh, there's always the next one. Yeah. Oh yeah. Shit ain't. There's, there's never going to not be another crazy murder or, you know, interesting foot chase or car chase. It's going to happen. You just got to like be patient and you'll get, you'll get it eventually. So you... You did your time in patrol, mm-hmm. and you decided to you wanted to put your toe in the detective waters, right? Yeah. So you applied for assaults. 
Yeah, I applied for other places too, and okay. I finally got assaults first. So, okay, where else yeah. did you apply? I applied to South Central Property Crime, Northeast Property Crime, Southwest Property Crime, Youth, Robberies. I know. I was like, what is it? Well, about? shame on the property crime for now. I mean, seriously. They, I mean, they, it worked out. You know, it worked but out. But at great. the time, I was yeah. just like, if I can't get my own station property crime, like, yeah. I'm, what's, what am I doing wrong? Well. Um, but yeah. Damn. Okay. So you get to assaults. What was and that? I got like? to assaults because of John. Oh, John because, was there? Well, no, I took John's he was, spot. Was he, in, he went to robbery, right? He went to robbery. That's right. So they, I authorized one more spot. So I took John's spot. And so that's why. I got into capers. Um, but yeah, assaults was, um, it was really different from patrol, especially when I went there. I think myself and a couple others were the first 9,000s in capers. And so it was still like you did 10 to 15 years before you get to capers at that time. And now it's like, as um, you know, three years, yeah, 11,000s or, you know, yeah. it's, it's super, it's way different. Um, and so when I went to assaults, I had, I want to say about five on or so something like that. Wow. Okay. And so, um, I was young. I mean, I was 26, 27 years old and everybody there was a lot older than me and they had been on for a lot longer than me. And John looked like he was 60. Oh yeah. yeah John's he, he, always John, had the white hair. John, John in 97, John had that look. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. He's going to give me so much shit. Good. Yeah. Um, you know what? He deserves it. Oh, yeah. I, I don't, I, I've got some funny stories to tell about John, you know, you he's, 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 episode he's, on that. No, oh, I could. No. <laughs> right. Yeah. Being partners with him and, um, uh, and you know it's it's funny he he listens to these too and he de- he? he's definitely gonna listen to this one because and I can't <laughs> wait you know him telling that story falling off the uh, the treadmill at twenty four hour fitness while he was running alongside uh, uh, a lady that was he fell well, off well, it? well known at the uh, uh, twenty that particular twenty four hour yeah. yeah John got too far to the edge and uh, I wish we was, could have a surveillance he, video of that oh yeah <laughs> it, retirement it, party or something yeah when he slipped and fell and mm-hmm. hit his forehead on the control panel and it was still rolling and it shot him out on the floor that is awesome oh yeah well what's funny is is when he came to the station that night mm-hmm. we're getting ready to go on he goes he goes man i've never been been so humiliated in my life and he had this mark on his forehead and he goes promise me you won't tell anybody i go i promise and he tells me the story, uh-huh. and he goes back to the locker room to get dressed. And I, I think I literally grabbed the first person to walk by and had <laughs> like, to tell. Guess what I just found out. John just said. <laughs> anyway, love, awesome. you, love you, John. Nobody listens to this anyway, so don't worry. Nobody's going to hear that story. <laughs> Kelly already knows. Um, so you did your time in, in assaults. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this. So when you're in assaults, mm-hmm. there is a thin line between aggravated assault and homicide in some oh, cases. Oh, yeah. Sometimes they jump rope with that, like they're 27, they're not, and or they weeks or months down the road, people yeah. hang on, mm-hmm. and it and then it turns into a homicide. I had that happen. So I had a case I worked with Tommy actually in assaults, mm-hmm. and then I went to homicide, and the guy died while I was in homicide, and you I was still on training. It. So I was with Scott Sayers, yeah, and I was on training, and so we took that case and finished it up, solved it done and guy like confessed immediately and i was like this is so easy i was just like oh this is nothing and then i quickly learned that i didn't know anything but yeah it was interesting that is cool you know and i'm gonna get into uh kind of some of these shared cases yeah. and how that dynamic works uh-huh. but so you finally that they have like a and at the time you applied for homicide mm-hmm. 2015 right yeah 2015. okay was it still the 
the it was an older unit at that point oh, yeah okay yeah. it was back then i was an on evening squad and i think that's part of the only reason why i got it to be honest because not a lot mm. of guys were wanting to go to evenings because yeah. they have families and stuff right. and so i just thought this was an opportunity i had been asked to apply before go over there before and i just didn't think i was ready i mean i was like I know what I'm doing, but I don't really know. I, you know, I mean, homicide's a big deal. You don't want to stage. Like, yeah, it's 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 the big leagues, and so you don't want to go before you don't want to fail and mess up a homicide case. So I waited until I had at least a couple years under my belt. I had two and a half when I went to homicide. So I was like, okay, now I feel like a little more confident in my skills and that I can contribute something to this unit. So, um, but yeah, when I went over, it was evenings and everyone there, you know, you had like Rick Duggan and you had Steve David, um, Eddie was over, Eddie Ibarra was over in SIU and you had Ahern and Timmy Stewart. So you had so much seniority, you know, all these people had been there for 10 years in homicide alone. So was John over there yet? No, John. Really? Didn't, no, John came after me because he went to cold case unit, yeah, that's and then right. when cold case dissolved, he came over to homicide. That's right. So, so he went from robbery to cold case. Yeah, yeah, that cold case unit. And actually, honestly, he he's he solved the first cold case. Yeah, uh, did he? Yeah, he, it was in Alabama. Yeah, it was, mm-hmm. and then they got they got the guy in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he solved the uh, first cold case, and when they started that up, and mm-hmm. then yeah, they they kind of dissolved it because of. It was a strain for the rest, right? I mean, like the, the, yeah, the, the, the caseload was getting heavy. It got dissolved in 2019, and I'm not sure if you remember Murderous May. It We had 42 murders in May, and there were 13 homicide detectives, so we each got three, Damn. which is just insane. Like, that's it's it's so not, not responsible to give a detective three murders in a month. It's just not, you know, possible, so. What was the process of going from a unit like assaults that you basically were drinking from a fire hose, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Case wise, case load wise mm-hmm. to go into a unit that you, for one, you didn't have a, comp- you didn't have a victim mm-hmm. that actually, that you can actually get their side of the story. Right. What was that like learning a lighter case load, but more in depth, different types of investigation? Um, yeah, like it was so, I had a lot of misconceptions. I think in assaults, I was like, man, homicide, like they almost always solve their cases. They don't have as many. They don't know what it's like to have 40 a month like us, you know. And of course, everything's different when you get over there. Um, so in, in assaults, you're kind of just like working the cases that people are cooperating, working the cases that you have leads on, that kind of thing. In a homicide, like you don't, you know, you're working every case. Every murder is, is you know, important and every murder you want to solve. And I think it's interesting for homicide because you really have to get creative sometimes and like creative investigations. Yes, there's obviously the traditional knock on doors, talk to people, um, old school cop work, but then you also have all this technology that's coming into play. Social media. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. And it's changed even from when I started homicide. You know, Facebook was just starting to give us records and now Snapchat, cell phone towers, phone dumps, um, yeah. geofencing. Like there's just so much that goes into a case file it can be like a terabyte of digital evidence it's ins- i mean you've seen it yeah, <laughs> Legal. it's, seen it's it. insane yeah. so so how long did you work in that job before you truly felt comfortable i mean like when you first got there mm-hmm. was, was there a time where you were thinking god i kind of feel overwhelmed or did you did, did you going from because you're on a you're on a bigger stage yeah right? oh yeah mm-hmm. and you know the tradition of dallas homicide which is rich mm-hmm. and you like you said, it is a different type of investigation. Was there a time where you were you were you ever overwhelmed? 
I mean, it definitely, as the years went on, the caseload picked up every year. Yeah. So it definitely kept. But your experience gained too. So you, you yeah. get more company, you get, yeah. you get your own niche. Okay. And, you know, I had a, I, I had a good run my first year. I solved every case. And so I was kind of like, oh, but I don't know that they were necessarily the hardest cases of all time. Um, but, you know, it, um, I would say like at least a couple of years until I got into like having a couple of trials and stuff like that, because that, that's also a huge test. It's one thing to solve it. It's another thing to win it. Yeah. And so I think, get into that. yeah. And so like doing that, I think, um, but you know, my first couple of months in homicide, some really interesting cases, you know, um, Zoe Hastings murder happened, Kendra Hatcher murder, which is the dentist case has been on a couple of different right. publications. You work, did you work? work uh, not really. I wasn't allowed to, mm-hmm. um, because of some administrative stuff. Um, but that case happened around the same time as Zoe Hastings. We had the Texas A&M football player who killed the guy the same day as Zoe. Yes, he was he was the wide receiver that yep. months earlier had gone missing. Mm-hmm. No, years earlier, like two years earlier, gone missing so. from A&M. And they, yeah. they, they ended up uh, finding him over in, in Southeast, actually. Yeah. yeah, and he like had killed that guy over in Northeast by White Rock. Yeah, yeah. Right by he, where Zoe was. He had a machete, right? Yeah. Yeah, was, yeah, hacked him up with a machete. Yep. And then we had a case of a guy found buried in concrete who had been dead for several months and the guy stole his identity. And it's just, I was like, huge eyes, like, this is so cool because yeah. it's this, like what you, which book, like books you read. Oh, yeah. Before like, you got the, the truth is so much crazier than any kind of book or TV show. And in getting to be in on that and like see the whole thing unfold, it's like, if you like true crime or you like that kind of stuff, it's like imagining getting to be there and like, contribute to it and, and figure it out like that's like the that's what it's all about so yeah so can, can you there's a, probably a lot of listeners that mm-hmm. are across the country and even out of the country that mm-hmm. they listen to this and can you kind of just briefly describe the zoe hastings murder yeah so zoe hastings was um, a young girl i believe she's about 19 years old and she was found dead um in a creek bed in the northeast part of Dallas by White Rock area. Um, it turns out that the day before, she had been on her way to church, and she gave she was returning a Redbox uh, DVD at a Walgreens, and a guy grabbed her there, um, kidnapped her, and, you know, she was... Um, she was stabbed to death and sexually assaulted, and they ended up solving the case through DNA on a weapon, and the guy is serving life right now. So, Good. Yeah. Well, he earned that. Yeah. Um. Why do they say the first 48 hours is most important in solving a crime? I think it's just kind of the momentum of the case. Um, one of the big things I always look at is victimology, which is when you go to the victim's family and find out, okay, who are they beefing with? Who's the problem? Is there a girlfriend? Is there a gang? Is there a drug money? Whatever it is. And that's a good starting point. But also you have fresh witnesses um, they just saw what happened or you had the surveillance video you want to get before it's gone. Um, you can still, you know, track the suspect potentially if you have a lead of where they went or something like that. So you want to do as much as you can before everything kind of disintegrates, before people, I don't want to cooperate with the investigation, before, you know, people get rid of stuff um, and why people are still, you know, remember everything. So the first 48 hours, um, I'm not sure if that just a slogan just for TV or what, but it definitely is like you work it really hard, especially in the beginning while you're all there, do everything you can. Cause that's when the leads are somewhat fresh. Right. And that's even, yeah. that even may, that, that even may change the way a witness can, can react after they have 
days or weeks of sit and mm-hmm. stew on it, they may decide their story. Their story may change because oh, yeah. the mind is very is is very yeah wacky that it can you can you can literally visualize things that didn't happen and add on to it. But in the first like the first forty eight hours, mm. your mind doesn't have the chance to sit and stew on it. Yeah, and, I mean whether it's changing from things like that or changing intentionally, where yes. you know someone yep. got to you which or happens. you don't want to deal with that that suspect or whoever, which we do see that a lot. People are intimidated and people, um, and you know, I'll give it to them. Like, I don't have to live in that neighborhood where they know the suspect. And so we, it's easy as cops to be like, man, no one wants to cooperate. But then sometimes I'm like, but I kind of do understand, like, how do you live there and do that? And people know that you did that and your safety and your family. So I do see both sides of the coin, but I still hope people do the right thing. You know, yeah, I know I get it too because they don't want to, they don't want to end up like the person they don't want to yeah. have you show up to their relative's house working there is because they they did the right thing, and yeah. that sadly happens, you and know, like and when, it's intimidation, I yeah. Mean, and like when they've seen the murder victim in that shop that they always go to every day, and now yeah. it's like that's just a constant reminder of like this is where I live and this is what I have to deal with. So, no, I get it. Um, can you remember your first? homicide case assigned to you my first case assigned i was still on training i was with mark ahern and it was over at a high-rise uh like the projects over on channel four southwest i think on fort worth avenue yeah and uh calvin johnson who's a lieutenant he was a sergeant at homicide back then was working an off-duty job and these guys got into an argument and shots are fired surveillance video you see his headlights come on because calvin was in the parking lot so oh. calvin arrested the guy so it was kind of like not really difficult because calvin was right there he um, viewed it right he yeah did, like yeah, he wow. didn't see the shooting but he was like he heard the gunshots and pulled around um and you know we had some witnesses and you know some issues with witnesses a little bit but it went to trial and i believe he got 27 years in prison okay. so yeah okay was it like a mutual combat uh, um they had been arguing in front of people and i think the suspect went upstairs and got a gun and claimed the guy lunged at him or something like that and so um you know shot you him get his side the complaint exactly yeah. and that and then you know the witnesses you have to look at are they truly independent do they have a bias one way or the other to the victim or suspect you know people are t- going to tell you what's beneficial for them or for their friend um so yeah and then they work they work in the same same mindset of fear absolutely of of, of, of actually given the truth right yeah. or yeah that's that's a never-ending mm-hmm. that's a never-ending battle yeah. um you know we're going to be on we, this is going to air after we go on it probably maybe i don't know depends on how quick danny can get get work danny's mm-hmm. very busy right now getting called out every day on swat oh, short-handed yeah. so he does my sound mm-hmm. so we're going to a true crime podcast festival. Oh, cool! And it's going to be here in Dallas. It's a three-day event, mm-hmm. and yeah, it, it's you know, there's a lot of true crime. I mean, people eat that up. Oh yeah, and, I mean, and it's interesting. Like that's yeah. that's there's a reason why is, there's all these shows on Netflix and and all that because it's it's intriguing. I mean, it's like the ultimate crime and all of it. So I watched a documentary on a murder and, and it basically this guy, he was smart enough to not to have any, he, he murdered his girlfriend, he, mm-hmm. but he, he did it. She was living out of state. She moved out of state. Well, he drove out there and he did not actually, he rented a car to go out there. He did not take a cell phone, any electronics to get track tracked out there. Yeah. He goes out and murders her. He comes back, he turns the car back in. Long story short, the detective there, the, the car that he rented mm-hmm. 
I guess, in the grill had certain a certain type of locust that was only unique oh, wow. to that certain area that that she was murdered in. Yeah, and that was one of the big things to to track it back. And you know, yeah. it, it was fascinating but and that's like did, the creative investigations that's where course. you have to kind of like think outside the box you know yeah so yeah that's Spe- cool yeah it was really it was really cool uh, i wouldn't mind re-watching that because yeah. it's been a while but that's it's fascinating mm-hmm. the little tiny details and alan holmes talked about that when he mm-hmm. you know he's alan's uh he's like a robot with arms and legs and the way his mind works <laughs> but mm-hmm. the tiniest details you can't yeah. overlook overlook them yeah uh in murders since you don't have a complainant to talk to mm-hmm. uh can you just kind of explain to the listener that there, there's not a listener out there, even the old gr- grunts and SWAT, they, mm-hmm. they still, there's a fascination with a homicide investigation yeah. where somebody lost their life. Yeah. Can you kind of in general, just kind of go over that, that process from whenever you get assigned the case, mm-hmm. what you, your initial steps when you go to start looking into it so we have like a batting order basically for homicide detectives and when you're up you get called and you could be you know two in the afternoon 4 a.m whatever it is and you go out to the scene and and the first thing you do is kind of just find out like a general like what do we have like do we know who the victim is are they at the hospital or at the crime scene do i have any witnesses do i have any surveillance cameras present um do i know is it a gunshot is it stab wounds is it whatever um do i have the weapon and you kind of get an idea of like a starting point of like, okay, where am I at? What do I need to work on? What can I do right now that's going to get me further in the investigation? And sometimes that's talking to the family, like I said, and getting kind of victimology information. Sometimes if you have cameras right there, like you want that video, like get me someone who can pull me that video so I can see it for myself. Um, and so that's kind of the beginning of it. And then from there, we'll kind of, if we don't have a lot of witnesses, sometimes you have, you know, like a body dump and you don't even know where to start. And that's when you rely on the ME's office for the autopsy and say, okay, what did they die from? What kind of object am I looking for? How long have they been dead? Um, and just to kind of go backwards. And so it's the thing I love about investigations, I guess, is that you never know how a case is going to pop. Like you don't know if it's going to be the magic phone call or if it's going to be a fingerprint or if it's going to be something on a cell phone. And so you want to like do all, check all the boxes, cast a very wide net. And then later on that one thing will come back and you're like, I'm so glad I tried that because it, you don't know how, how it's going to solve. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, preservation of evidence yeah that's mm-hmm. key is it is that right absolutely yeah. and you don't know what's what's significant necessarily in the beginning like you may see something on in the crime scene like a little a wrapper or a receipt and later on that was what led you to the bad guy or whatever it is yeah whenever a uh, patrol responds to a scene mm-hmm. you as a detective Mm-hmm. And you, you and basically patrol usually they respond to they're the first responders yeah. to most of these scenes, even yeah. a, a, a dead body dump. Mm-hmm. What would you tell a young and old officer what they would what, what could they do in the streets being a first responder to better assist you in your investigation when they first get there? What could they do? I mean, basically, you know, preserving the evidence as much as possible, crime scene protection, that kind of thing. Separating the witnesses is something I think that people don't always understand why it's so important. And the reason is because if you have two witnesses in the same car or in the same area, they're influencing each other's statements. It's they're repeating each other as opposed to from their memory. And so like, I always tell people in cases, you know, even though we're all in the same room, I'm looking at this corner, you're looking at that corner. So we all have different perspectives and you may have seen something another witness didn't. And it doesn't mean that 
you're wrong or he's wrong. It just means that you have a different perspective. So getting those statements from witnesses to be as authentic as possible without influence of each other is so significant, I think. And it can make a huge difference in an investigation. Excellent. Um, I want to get into some cases you work. Yeah. Uh, you brought uh, a lot of here. You got a lot of detective notes here. I do because these cases are six years old and six, a couple of six years old. But, you know, I was thinking about it and I've been out on literally hundreds of murders. And so sometimes they kind of run together a little bit. Yeah. And so remembering like the details is why I printed off just like some PCAs to kind of remind myself of how that whole case went down kind of a thing. All right, detective. Okay. Uh, what are some of these cases you brought with you? So I have some old cases, and I'm just kind of going through them. Um, so one case, uh, I call it my brown eyes case, and this happened in May of 2016. And basically, we had a guy who was shot and killed over at the Days Inn Motel on Lancaster, which if anyone's... Very fancy. Yeah, so nice. I mean, concierge and everything. Yeah. Um, Continental but, breakfast. <laughs> yeah. It's near the truck stops, and so you have a lot of prostitution and stuff like that down there. Really? Oh, yeah, I know, right? Um, but yeah, so and I used to work this area when I was in patrol, so I kind of remembered it, but basically this guy is found shot and killed on his balcony outside of a hotel. Um, at first we didn't really have much. We got a surveillance video, but I think we didn't get it to the following day. So sometimes that's a problem if it happens at three in the morning, like no manager there to pull it. So you just kind of like, you know, go from there. Um, we talked to his family. He had gone down there and he was a truck driver, so he's familiar with the area, but he had a lot of cash that I think he would take down there and he would get prostitutes and few drugs and that kind of thing. Uh, we found a cell phone in the room that didn't appear to belong to the victim, so we got a search warrant for it, dumped it, and we got some some phone conversations that were actually audio recorded and there was a female on it and she was communicating with the victim about bringing over some drugs, bringing over a girl right before this happened. And so we knew, okay, there's probably going to be the prostitution or something like that. Involved he was ready in for it. a party. Oh yeah. He was, he wanting some party favors yeah. and he wants someone to hang out with. Yeah. So, um, so from there I did a lot of work with the guys at South Central and CRT and things like that. People who knew the area. And I talked to basically any prostitute I could in that area who could kind of explain who this woman was and who she worked with and things like that. And, um, you know, working these kind of cases, it's kind of funny because I never thought when I was in college at Nebraska in my sorority, I would be talking to tea bucket and cinnamon and pleasure and precious and London. And I was just like, what? Like, you know, sometimes you're just like, how did I get here? Yeah. But, um, so I talked to a lot of the girls who worked the area and found out who this woman was. Her name was Michelle. And um, from there, a girl came forward and we got some more information, a girl named Baby Girl. And basically, um, the, we found out the victim had a lot of money and he would frequently use this prostitute when he was there in the area. Um, and the, the video showed a car pulling up with a guy and two females getting into the, the hotel room. You can see them struggling at the door and then they all run out. So when we picked up Michelle and baby girl, we got information about a guy named Brown Eyes. And they call him that because his eyes are bright, bright brown and um, really, you know, stand out. And um, 
we brought in the girl baby girl and she she gave us information said that it was a robbery basically and we got surveillance video of brown eyes with the two females beforehand it was his car um, all that information and it wasn't anything super interesting I think there was a fingerprint that he had in the in the hotel room as well Um, he eventually was brought in under arrest for capital murder Um, he confessed to shooting him but said that he did not rob him and that he was just hanging out after he got paid, which makes no sense because I'm like, dude, if you got money, you're out of there. What are you going to do hanging right. out with this? So the, one of the girls said it was more of like, we're going to go to the ATM kind of a thing. So um, I believe they pled it down to murder and he got 30 years as a plea deal. Okay. So it never went to trial? No, it did not go to trial. Um, he um, he had a lot of violent felonies, um, but they gave him 30 years. So. Okay. Um what was the biggest challenge in that case from it was it was it just established getting rapport with the with the prostitutes with cinnamon and yeah and, and that i mean you know hodgepodge of nicknames yeah people don't love to talk to cops especially when we arrest them because people who are in kind of like high risk lifestyle i mean they see us a lot and normally they're in the back of a squad car so they don't trust us and um even though these women some a lot of them were not involved in this at all they don't want to snitch on somebody in their profession, in their world. Well, they have, it's like cops have a brotherhood and a sisterhood. Yeah. They have a sisterhood too. Right? Yeah. And they, and they have, a, they have their own community is, mm-hmm. you know, and. And whether it's from friendship or fear and, you know, the pimp thing, I mean, you know, all of it. Yeah. But so that was definitely um, something, but also too, you know, I think when you have a case going to possibly trial, can you bring them on the witness stand? Are they a credible witness? Are the jury's going to like them, trust them? Right. So then that's a factor when they decide about plea deals and, and all of that. I'm not a prosecutor, obviously, but that is what goes into it, I think. Of course. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the other ones you got there? So later on, like that same year, this was in July of 2016. So this was kind of interesting. Um, basically, we had a guy that was found over on Southeast in like a wooded area. An officer found him. She was out walking her dog. And, and I can't remember the officer's off, name. Off duty? Yeah, she lived over there. Okay. And so this guy is found probably a good... That's the kind of things you find when you're out walking a dog in Southeast. I know, right? Yeah. Like it was, yeah. And so it was probably like 10 to 15 feet from the street, like on this kind of like, uh, you know grassy leafy area or whatever and this old man was found face down and um he had a lot of maggots and things like that De- on decomp. him decomp was, yeah. it wasn't like full decomp but it was like when you have cut injuries especially they kind of gravitate towards open wounds right and so i couldn't tell this guy looked like at all he had uh no shoes on but his socks were clean so i'm like okay he's you not don't. walking like that mm-hmm. right and um when i went to the me's office couldn't get fingerprints and they said, I don't know how he died. There's sharp injuries, but could it be a car accident? Could it be a stab wound? Like, I don't know. So I didn't really have much to go on. We ended up getting identification through his pacemaker. So I should have mentioned, he's probably in his late 80s okay. or 90s. I think late 80s, if I recall. Um, so he was an older guy. So once I found out who he was, um, he was from Red Oak. So I go to Red okay. Oak and to, to try to do next of kin. He lives in a trailer park. When I get there, the sheriff's office is there with the next door neighbor who's also in a trailer. And I tell her, you know, your neighbor died. And she said, I think my grandson may have something to do with that. Which I was kind of like interesting because he's in his eighties. I thought you would have been like, you know, heart attack or something. And basically she said that, um, the victim, his van was missing 
and she hadn't seen him in a couple of days and he doesn't get around that great. So that didn't make a lot of sense to her. Um, and while we were there, I got the information for the license plate, ran it and found that it had just been crashed in Collin County. Just like in a car accident, left on the side of the road, airbags deployed, that kind of thing. And so we're like, okay, we have guy missing out of Red Oak, which is one county, found in Dallas County, cars in Collin County. So we have three counties involved in this thing. And so um, she tells me the name of her grandson. I kind of get a little more information. I talked to the victim's daughter. She gave me some bank information. I found a credit card transaction, and it was in, I want to say, Falk Springs, something like that. So I go out there, pull video, it's the van. And this van has like rust marks. It's like a green Plymouth or something, very unique, it stands out. So when I see the video, I see the van pull up, I see the guy go in there and it's the grandson. He's got the victim's credit card and he's buying some cigarettes. And so I'm like, okay, I got something here that that could be something, but I don't have a cause of death at this point. So it's kind of different from our usual cases where you're like gunshot wounds, whatever. I can't prove he murdered him at this point. I don't know how he died. So um, I talked to some friends of the suspect and they basically said that he made an outcry when they were drinking, like, ha ha, I killed someone. Just kidding. You know, that kind of thing. And they were, what was this van about? And how did you get there? And they didn't really understand what this van was about. So we take the van back and get it searched with a search warrant. We blue star it. Now people know what that is, but it's a reagent that reacts to blood. Okay. So you look at the van inside and you don't really see anything like, crime wise and then you hit it on the blue star and it lights up and that was my first light up like a christmas tree you know we've heard that on it like, look like a astrology <laughs> yeah it <laughs> like does a, like a, and I, yeah. I don't think i ever had a blue star case yet it was like my first year in homicide uh-huh. a year and a half and so i was really excited that it actually worked because i'm like oh this actually is what it is so we get blood in the back and you know now dna takes forever so like mm-hmm. i wasn't going to find out whose that was for a while but we swabbed the airbag as well and all that and um the friend of the suspect had told me that you know he crashed the car and said he was high and made a comment about stealing something from this guy but again I didn't have a cause of death so the grandmother brings him down to talk to me and this was a non-custodial even though it was non-custodial I went ahead and ran him I read him the rights because I already knew like this guy probably killed him yeah so I went ahead and ran, read him the Miranda warning at first you know he was just deny and then he got really serious and he said okay can I hug my grandma and my brother before I go I was like yeah I mean I'm not trading you in for, I'm not trading you promises for information but like I'm a reasonable person like he was very decent with me I well, said okay yeah that's part of gaining rapport too right? absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah and this kid was like I say kid I mean 19 or 20 like he was young um and he had a drug history so we're talking and he said he starts crying he was like you know I needed drugs. Like I was high and I just needed another fix. And so I went into the, into the trailer and I told him like, you know, give me everything, any money. And he said, I killed him because he wouldn't give me the money. And which means he talked himself into capital murder, even though he stole the van and used the credit card. You could argue that's not his intention. He did that after the fact, but because he said like, I killed him because he refused that's capital murder. So, um, which we, is a higher charge to the listener. Yes, yeah. capital murder is, the, is the highest charge yeah. in Texas. And mm-hmm. so it's life without parole or death penalty. Um, and so 
you know, later on do the testing, the victim's blood is in the backseat of the car and the suspect's DNA is on the airbag. He was driving the car and everything. Um, so everything kind of added up and, um, he said he dumped the body with someone else. Didn't recall who the guy was. I really couldn't figure it out ever because he didn't have a cell phone. So I never really found out who this mysterious Jack guy was that helped him dump the body. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, that case, they pled it out. He got 50 years. They pled it to regular murder, but 50 years is a pretty respectable number. Yeah. Um, but I think the interesting thing with those two cases is they're both the same year. The suspect in the older man murder um, had no violent history. He had drugs and some, like, petty theft. Um, I don't think he was a documented gang member. Whereas the Brown Eyes case, to my recollection, I think he had some ag robs. He had been with DPD, like, cases all the time and, you know, stuff like that. Violent guy, and the rumor was that he had more bodies on him that nobody wants to talk about. So you look at, you know, he got 30, younger kid gets 50. And it's... Because the younger kid told me it was a capital. I mean, he he gave me the elements of the crime for capital murder. Well, every case, it, 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 any case you file, it is a case by case, mm-hmm. circumstance by circumstance. Yeah, you know uh, that's how it's looked at. Yeah, you, you know, you there is there is a standard, and there is a there is a standard set when it comes to punishment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it literally still boil, boils down to the the, the jury. Mm-hmm. The judge in, in the way it's presented, in yeah, the way it's ar- argued against. Right? Yeah. Did you ever see that movie Twelve Angry Men? Oh, I haven't. No. Oh my I, I know God. of it. Yeah, I've just never seen it. You actually need to watch the original because yeah. for an old black and white movie, mm-hmm. that movie still holds up. You got twelve jurors deliberating mm-hmm. in a room, and they're all big name actors, and, and and it's Twelve Angry Men for a reason. But it's really interesting that how their mind changed because other people. Mm-hmm show a different perspective of mm. of the type that you really need to see. I think yeah. you would like it. It's 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 a fascinating case. I rewatched it recently. Oh, and, really? uh, yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, I'll have to watch it for sure. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. So the, it sounds like this, some of the cases, like you start off IDing about somebody by a pacemaker. Okay? Yeah. And then mm. it leads to this, I mean, all these different, it's like a, you're putting together a puzzle mm-hmm. that's scattered on the floor and it may have some other pieces that don't belong sprinkled in that you have to sift through. Yeah. Right. And like, that's, that's one of it. Like, it's just so, there's so many stories. I mean, I mean, not my case, but Grubbs had a case of a guy in a freezer, you know, a guy in like eight, nine pieces in a freezer and, uh, identified him through fingerprints, but he also had a, uh, a shoulder implant and the guy was trying to cut off that. So you couldn't read the serial number that's identifying. Um, so just like, there's so many cases, like, it's just, it's crazy how much you know you can't make up this kind of <laughs> drama um so but to get to be a part of these cases from the beginning are just really interesting so do you have any other ones you want to talk about um it depends i mean like i have i have a triple i did uh in 2020 um it wasn't anything super complicated um basically i had two, three victims in a hotel room over on uh northwest division mm-hmm. at, uh channel five shout out channel five yeah it was over on gardner the super seven mm-hmm. in now the good thing is because of all of their um high crime area they have a lot of cameras and a lot of good cameras um bad thing is the angles aren't that great and so i couldn't really tell but basically you have a guy at the hotel who found three bodies in a hotel room 
and um, two women and a, and a guy. And at first we were like thinking, could this be a murder suicide situation? Like, cause you see that sometimes with multiple deaths. Yeah. Um, it's like a family annihilator. And yeah. Go in and, yeah. Yeah. And so, but we never found a gun and so we ruled that out. And so we had surveillance video, but going through, I didn't know when this happened. We thought this was on like a, I think this was like around 10 or 11 in the morning. And we later found out it happened the following, the previous night at like, in the afternoon, evening. Um, and they just were not decomposing like we thought they were. So we thought it was fresher than it was. If that makes sense. I think the AC was on pretty high and stuff like that. So factors like that, that would really, yeah. yeah. And then okay. and that's one of the things like, you never know. Some people you're like, wait, how long have they been dead? And other people you're like, they just died. Are you sure? It's just, it's interesting. But to the listener where I'm actually recording in a different room in the very accommodating Office of the Chief of Police and on the sixth floor in mm-hmm. this room we're in, we're I'm we are freezing. I'm, yes, she's I got am. a jacket I'm on. I'm sitting jacket. here in a t-shirt. And I am I am freezing. Yeah. So yeah. Th- so it'll probably take longer for a body to decomp in this <laughs> yeah, room. Yeah. If, if we get left in here a while, it might take yeah, us a while. I, so, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, those are all factors that you know you use to like establish a timeline if you can and things like that. So. So in this case, it was yeah. different. So what what else? So basically, um, we got the surveillance video and finally found one person that went in the room. And he was only in there for a few minutes. And so I had a suspect vehicle description. And we put it out um, you know, to the media. And I didn't really have anything else. The family of the girl. So it was a woman, her mother. And then the, the younger woman's boyfriend are the victims. And so I gave next to Ken to the family. And of course, they were devastated because it wasn't just their mom. It was their grandmother, too. Uh. So you had two women in the same family that were killed. And um, they said that there was this guy named Eddie that just got out of prison, that their mom used to kind of date on and off. And like it, maybe it was Eddie. Um, so the problem was no one knew who Eddie was. And they had dated on and off for a long time. And they said... Maybe he's got ties to Fort Worth. So I call Fort Worth homicide. I gave them the name from Facebook they have for him, the picture that's very old and not that good quality. And they check every database. And I cannot find this name anywhere. Like I've checked every variation of spelling of Eddie, Eduardo, all these things. Can't find anything. I have a phone number in the victim's phone and Peggy's phone, the older woman of Eddie. And so I'm like, maybe it's the same Eddie. So I do a search warrant on it while I'm waiting for information to come in. Um, Records take a while to come back. We finally do a a track down with Sean Rabb, which is on Fox 4. Yep, Fox 4. Shout out, Sean. And he'll do um, surveillance video releases and then an interview with detectives. And so we did a little bit of that. And I put that out on a Wednesday night. And the next morning, I get a tip. And this family calls and says, that's our son. And they were in Azel PD. And they went to Azel PD and said, "Uh, that's our son. He's at the house right now. I'm scared. You should probably do something about that. Um, So... The son had told his mother something about like this girl, Rachel, who was the ex-girlfriend, the younger woman mm-hmm. who was killed. He had said that she had murdered him and that he was an angel of death and this kind of talk. So we already kind of thought, OK, there's just something here with that. Um, and at that same time, I got records back from the cell phone provider for for Eddie's phone. It showed that Eddie's phone was in the area of the crime scene at the time that it happened. Um, we also got the vehicle was towed up in, I want to say McKinney. And so they had the vehicle from the night before where Eddie got stopped with the girlfriend. The vehicle is the vehicle. It matches it to a T. Um, they had paper plates on it, of course. So I couldn't get anything with LPR, but it was, that was the car. Um, and now that Eddie's phone puts him there as well, I think I have Eddie. So 
Eddie gets transported down to Dallas PD headquarters. I issue an arrest warrant for, for capital murder at that point. The girlfriend was also seen on video, and, like, that is the girl on video who goes to the room. Now, she doesn't go inside the room. She just kind of, like, peeks in. I think she heard something, like three gunshots, and got freaked out. But then they leave. So on the video, he's in that room for less than three minutes. I mean, it's, it's very quick. Um, and so everything kind of lines up with that. She denies being there, denies knowing anything. Um, she was from, I think Honduras. And so I had to have a translator and I don't think it was getting across the way I wanted it to with a translator. She was a, a a great officer, but she hadn't done much interrogations and homicide. And so trying to like get her to like match my energy of like, we're going to go hard on her. You need to like turn up the volume a little bit. It didn't really translate well yeah um and so i didn't really get much from her i interviewed him and got past miranda and everything and he just denied and he was i would say very much of machismo or it was a woman i hate to say that but it was a he would not let me talk over he would say like calm down sweetie or stuff like that and i'm already like really pissed off anyway um and so he would talk over me at one point we were both yelling at each other and that's just not a conducive interview like you're not getting anywhere with that Mm -hmm. and but you don't want to let them win either and so it was hard to like for me to just to like stop and say okay am i actually gaining anything out of this does this look professional for you know trial whatever and so um he never confessed i think eventually he asked for an attorney we later watched the video and he like moved the table has a glass and then he like crossed himself and then like put blood in his glass and we're like what the hell like we looked everywhere and there was nothing sharp we're like where did this blood come from i don't know if he had like a cut or what but it was super weird it was a ritual like a ritual it looked like a ritual like he like crossed himself and so we searched the van later in mckinney and we find all these email addresses and we find all this scrap paper we find the dress that she had on the night of the offense we later found out where they were staying in fort worth and have surveillance video of them leaving the fort worth hotel to go to the dallas hotel same clothing in both videos it's the same car the time frame matches up with the phone records it all kind of works out um i get gmail records back from his google accounts searches about you know which of the apostles committed murder like very much religious and stuff like that and like um did, what, what made you go that route just out of curiosity they, just, they, what, what made the you, gmail accounts no no the the apostle the the what made you start delving into that well i mean he had made comments to like his mom like i'm the angel of death okay and he said that rachel killed me and i came back and that people who are evil, you know, and so he never came out and said, I committed murder to yeah. anybody, but he certainly was in that ballpark. And so that's so, you thinking outside the box to go into. Yeah. The, it's very like in the, in the, especially with Google accounts, I mean, detectives know, like when you have Gmail, you can get some internet search history, potentially you can get phone numbers associated with that account. Um, and so like finding out what their search history is, like he searched different kinds of firearms and things like that, different calibers that matched up with the crime scene. So even though I never found a murder weapon, I have this internet search history that shows the kind of gun that was used in the offense. So it's just one more thing to kind of add on to it. Um, you know, one of the things I learned from detectives who taught me was like, you always want multiple connections because you don't know what's going to last from trial three or four years later. And we never thought COVID was going to be 
what it did to mm-hmm. the, you know, but you want phone records, you want witness statements, you want on surveillance video, you want a confession, you want to get a social media conversation so that that way, if the witnesses go away, if the confession is thrown out, whatever it is, you have other connections to build your case on. And so you always say like, you know, you don't just want the Sunday, you want the sprinkles, you want everything. And that's how a case is like, when you have a case like that and they, they want to plead, you're like, okay, I did good because they don't want to try this in trial, you know? So, um, but later on, that was in 2020, I found out he wrote a letter to the judge about a year later saying he wanted to plead guilty and wrote this whole long thing about why he did it, but like, you guys didn't have a good case on me, but whatever, I'll confess anyway, I'll take a plea. So he just pled to 60 years. Wow. Now granted, it's a capital because it's multiple persons. Mm -hmm. Three different people are dead, 60 years. The other option would be life without parole, but you have to look at his age and, you know, is he actually going to get paroled? And yeah, yeah, he got 20. So basically 20 years per person. Pretty much. Yeah. But again, you know, you look at all the factors and like, I think a lot of people think life is just the ultimate, but if someone's 60 years old and then they get 30 years, I mean, it's kind of like the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So, and this guy, I want to say he was like 35, 37, something like that. So more than likely he won't see the light of day. More than yeah, likely, yeah. no. I mean, if he's, unless he's a perfect prisoner and he's eligible at 30, yeah. but I don't know that he'll be a perfect prisoner, so. No, he's being the angel of death and all. No, probably yeah. Not. yeah, I mean, like, the letter a year later it was, like, all this fantastical, like, they were demons, and I have it on my desk, actually, and I, I put it on my locker, so it's kind of an interesting. Yeah, bad. You know, like. Fascinating. Yeah, so. So, yeah. I, I got to listen to these cases and, and the methods that you're, that you that you do mm-hmm. clearly think outside the box and mm-hmm. um, your reputation is that from, from your peers, how the hell did murders get solved without, without videos and audios and social media back in the day? I mean, think about it. We, yeah. we are in the video age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even for officers working out in the streets with body cams, mm-hmm. I mean, everything oh, gosh, is on yeah. video. How the hell were murders solved? I mean, really there's, a, I mean, that's, it's fascinating. It really is. And that's why like, I love talking to detectives who are like the old heads, you yeah. know, because you really did have to have some, you had to be good. I mean, you couldn't rely on a bit. Sometimes like, that's why I say some of these cases. Even DNA are not, wasn't around. No. And like some of these cases, I always say like, you know, I didn't do much. I got lucky. I mean. No, you didn't get lucky. You, you worked with what, 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 what we had at the time, the capabilities yeah. and, and, the, and the sciences and, and technology that we had at the time, which mm-hmm. that's a part of it now, mm-hmm. but still it's a hell of a lot of work. It is. But I mean, you know, there are some cases where like you'll do all these things. And then like, like on the Zoe Hastings case, when the DNA hit, we had not heard that name. He was not on the radar. Like he, he wasn't a sex offender in the yeah. area. We were, looking, like, we were just like, who the hell is that guy? I mean, it just, and so sometimes whether you get the video or the fingerprint, it, it hits it and everything else unlocks from there. And so, um, but yeah, I, I got a chance to meet um, Jim Lavelle. Yeah, oh yeah. And, you know, he was a detective on the JFK, mm-hmm. everything, and super nice guy. But, you know, hearing his stories about working murders from the 60s. Quite different. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And and I don't even know, you know, just all the procedures. and But, you know, now, too, there's a trust issue with law enforcement and everything. And so I try to video and audio record everything. Yeah. Um, just so that we can give the prosecutor as much information as to how I solved it and who I talked to and what we said and that kind of thing as well. Well, we actually had on uh, Sonny Boyd, uh, Elmer Sonny Boyd, mm-hmm. and he, he was the he's the, la- the oldest living detective that handled Oswald and Ruby, and the only time he was not with Oswald through that whole ordeal 
is when during the prisoner transfer, whenever he got shot. With, uh, yeah, he Lavelle came up to homicide there. when he was here. Yeah, visit. I was we got a picture. Yeah. With, yeah, you were there. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. He came on and in a fast. He's ninety four and he's still sharp. Yeah, just his memory. It's incredible. Yeah, uh, it was an honor to sit with that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, what is there any cases that 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 you worked and in, in Andrea, you're you're very. I'm not going to say icy, but you were really <laughs> no. You were really. It didn't seem like a lot gets to you as far as you're very. You seemed to whether it's from all these experiences mm-hmm. to life experiences, do you have a bulletproof mind? You seem very mentally just tough. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there any case that is that just you worked that just damn, it, it even affected you like from an emotional standpoint? Oh yeah. I mean like from patrol or detective detective detective. I mean, yeah, there are some, I mean, obviously no one likes dead kids. That's yeah. So in our department, you know, child abuse will typically do child murders, but if it's a stranger on stranger or it's not obvious family violence, typically homicide will step in. So we had one recently um, that Grubbs has primary and I helped him out on and I believe that child was three. Um, I had a two-year-old killed in 2020, um, but Grubbs had a case. So 2020 was weird because since I started in 2015, we hadn't had a single triple murder at all. And then 2020 came around and we had four, four different triples and they were mostly domestics and COVID uh, making people crazy man, people, being at home. Yeah, yeah. People aren't supposed to be with their spouse yeah, <laughs> for 24 was, yeah, hours a day. In. Yeah. And so like, I don't know if it was whatever, but this guy this terrible human being. He killed his two kids, his wife and himself. And when we got there to the hotel, he had killed them, I think the night before and then killed himself like right before we all got out there. And he tucked himself in bed with them. So he moved his wife into the side and then he put his arm around everybody and like he put their hands so that they were all like holding hands and then he shot himself. So, and these kids were like, uh, I want to say like eight and like 10, maybe two, two sons. But the woman he killed was his current wife, not the children's mother. And he had sent her a message pretty much saying like, don't worry about the whole custody thing. I got taken care of and just as like a way to punish her for her life. And so, you know, it, suicide is part of what we do too, as well as overdoses and stuff like that. And, um, you know, that's sucks, but to take kids with you, especially, I mean, to take anyone with you, but especially to take a child with you. I mean, and you know, it's, you know, you learn to compartmentalize what you see sometimes and you just have to, to deal with it. But, um, that case, I just remember one of the kids when we moved to him, he had an expression on his face that just has always stayed with me. His eyes were just wide because I think he's, his brother got killed first. And I think that's when he woke up and he realized, holy shit. And you know, this asshole shot him in the back of the head. And so, you know, I don't like cry at it scenes and stuff like that. Um, the only time I ever got close to that was seven, seven. Cause I was working on seven, seven and you know, um, but beyond that, um, yeah, kids are like usually for most people, I would say, because we're used to kind of adults killing each other. You never really get fully used to it, but for kids, it's just like, a, it's that, it's that line. Like there has to be like a line and for some people there just isn't. And it blows my mind. Evil, evil is real, right? Oh and, gosh. And, yeah. yeah. And yeah, anything with kids, that's what sticks with me the most. Uh, yeah. I have I have an eight-year-old, and mm-hmm. any, any of the listeners know, they know who it is. Um, that that makes me, I mean, that, heartbreaking. Yeah. 
and mad. Like it's it's one of those things of like just angry. Yeah, it's and, one thing dealing with a, a two rival gangbangers. Yeah, they they live a high risk lifestyle. That that comes with that territory. Yeah. But the but these kids they they're they're innocent. They, they have no they trusted their father. Yes, like they would have never. You know, like they didn't do anything. And, and that's, like I said, the, the victims who really don't do anything, but the kids especially. It's just like they're hot. Yeah. There's a special place in hell for that guy, I think. I hope. I hope. Yeah. I hope a, he's got a few elevators down, right? And levels. Absolutely. Uh, how do you deal with this? Like, how do you, what do you do? Because, you know, DPD's starting up this new wellness unit, and I'm going to be a part of it. I'm going to mm-hmm. work my ass off uh, on this. Anybody knows me, I'm going to put them everything into it yeah uh how do you unwind what you i know you read and yeah but how do you what do you do not as much as i should to be honest um you know i i talked to my partner about this and we're just so used to this pace like it's not a good thing but like i'm so used to just like constantly having a hundred things to do like I, at any given time i'm so behind on everything and i'm trying to do better with that but for me um hanging out with my friends especially my friends who knew me before DPD life. So like my friends from college, my sorority sisters, um, I have a wine night on my street in my neighborhood and they're awesome. And so just kind of being around people who aren't cops sometimes helps a lot because it reminds you that you're still a person. Like you're still like just who you were before you became a cop. And I like to travel. I just got back from a trip to Croatia this summer. Um, That's all the pics. Yeah. It was, it was so awesome. But like just doing those kind of things, I think help, bring you back to your humanity a little bit and remind you that like the world isn't as bad as it seems. It's easy to go down that road and be like, God, there are so many bad people and so many people hate officers, but it's not true. It's just all that we see. That's what we see all day. So. Well, like you said, you do, you learn as an officer, whether you're working on patrol or you work all the way at homicide mm-hmm. or and all these many units in between that you, we learn to compartmentalize and detach. Yeah. We have like, crazy dark humor yeah and people i'm sure if they came up to the fifth floor and just heard us talking without context they would wonder what's wrong with us yeah they'd be appalled oh my gosh yeah i mean it's like it's like working with a bunch of brothers and uncles and dirty uncles or whatever (laughs) but um but it's because we can understand each other and we have no judgment towards each other because we've been through it so have you uh have you ever worked a serial killer case not that I know of. Okay. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah, I mean, okay. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I did help a little bit Brian Tabor on Shamir Mir, mm-hmm. but not a lot, unfortunately, because I had a bunch of cases myself at that time. So yeah, yeah, that was an interesting case. That's a very interesting. That's you the one. You should get I, Brian on here for that. Yes, yes, I'd love to. He's retired um, now. He'd be willing to do it. Oh, he'd he'd say a lot. <laughs> yeah, he would. Um, we we talked about the prosecution side. Mm-hmm. Um, now. We have we case filing is much different from 2015 to when you to when you started even going back to for the assaults. Yeah, it's much different of um, the requirements that we're under, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I got the legal in 2016. Mm-hmm. So, from a case filing standpoint, evidentiary standpoint, and as um, the amount of work that you have to do, yeah. and you you factor in all the videos, ring videos, and all the cell phone. Uh, information computer mm-hmm. information cell tower i mean all of this mm-hmm. is, we have to comb through all that yeah 
and get it to the DA for prosecution. And that's important. So you, the DA is officers or detectives are required to give everything for the, you know, to the case. And the DA has to comb through all this evidence. Mm -hmm. You know, we had uh, DA uh, Michelle Sugart. She talked about the Dr. Death case Mm -hmm. about having to comb through this hours and hours and hours of, of mountains of evidence. And, you know, just like you did, you comb through it, Mm -hmm. you give it to them, they comb through it and then they prep and, and you go into court and trials, uh, You've testified, right, several yeah. times. Okay. Yeah. Testimony, folks, is not easy. I hate testifying. <laughs> yeah, it, it literally, um, I used to I used to teach a, a, a courtroom testimony class, okay. and everybody that I put through it, it's mm-hmm. all benefit, because our department doesn't, I don't think, they, they really don't teach you. I mean, there's, it's minimal, and a lot of it's learning as you go, but you really have to prep for that, because as guilty as somebody is, you're still convincing 12 people mm-hmm. of of why you're right yeah right and, mm-hmm. and it needs to be beyond a reasonable doubt yeah okay mm-hmm. and you know the the defense attorney they have a role just mm-hmm. like a prosecutor a prosecutor presents and a defense a defense attorney battles the prosecutor and battles you yeah. as a detective a lead detective that's pre- that's you gather the evidence and then a prosecutor presents it right yeah how what is that feeling like when you're when you're on the stand and a defense attorney that you know defense attorney more than likely they know they're they know oh, they're yeah. guilty oh, but they're yeah. they're doing their job to yeah. poke holes in your mm-hmm. in your case and that's definitely like, I mean it took me a long time to kind of understand that is that even though I may not like their tactics defense attorneys have a role and it's not the most perfect system of all time but our country is very unique in that you can be judged by your peers and you have a right to have a trial and you have a right to have an attorney who I mean so like in that sense you have to respect what the whole premise is behind a jury trial um but I hate public speaking I always get really red and you know whatever mostly because people watching me like being on the spot like that um and I try to do a thorough investigation and I've never had like any significant complaints from a DA but you know you always you want to do good and you want to you want to win so um not knowing what they're going to ask me. When I was a rookie, I used to get very um, defensive on the stand. I was called a hostile witness a couple of times. And so I try to like balance that more as a detective and be as professional as I can, as clear spoken as I can um, and get across to the jury like what I did. And, you know, one of the things the detectives told me that old heads were like, no matter what you did, if you got everything possible, they're going to find something. They just are. And it's their job not to convince them someone else did it. It's it's their job to poke holes. It's just their job to cause a little bit of doubt. Could an alien have done this? Like, I don't know. I mean, you know, like it's just something fantastical they're going to come up with. So not to take it too personal because they're just saying whatever they're going to say. And and they have a lot more leeway about what they can tell a jury or infer to a jury that may not be factual evidence. Um, But we are bound by the law and the truth. But, you know, I just get up there and tell the truth and, and do the best that I can and try to admit when I make a mistake because I do make mistakes and um, yeah. Well, yeah, anybody can hindsight and look, look back at anything yeah. done. Hell, somebody can critique my drive in here today, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's easy to do that. In every um, case you do, you get better the more you do it. I mean, it's course. like anything else. So. But I'm sure every case, the ones that you, you know, you, you even thinking outside the box and, and, and touching all these finer points and you're refining all these these methods mm-hmm. it's still you can even look back from 
two years ago and think, oh, I could have done this better. Or oh, I, could have, I could have done this. Or absolutely. I looked into this. I look at my case files now from like 2016, 2017, 2018, and I have kind of a different style of my investigative notes. And I just do things a lot faster because I'm just so used to doing it. Like I'll, you know, it's not, it's not unquestionable to do 15 search warrants on a case for me now. <laughs> Whereas when I first started out, I do like two or three. And now I'm just like, oh, yeah, I can knock out 10. Like, it's crazy. But I've just had so many reps. You know, and that's one of the things that's good about Dallas, but it's also like we're really busy. That's that's almost that's too many cases. Um, but yeah, so now let me ask you this. So have you been part of an investigation that um that 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 did not get justice that you worked on? It's funny because that happened to me Friday. Really? Okay. Like five days ago. So, um, premise of the story, I guess this guy was shot 16 times in the back on video okay. down in South central. And the defense attorney said self-defense because the victim threatened him first and suspect followed him and shot him down before he reached his car. And the jury came back Friday with not guilty after about an hour and a half. And I was just shocked. Cause I mean, we don't always get, it on video, especially like the whole thing. You may get like a partial or car speeding off, but to get the guy standing over his body, shooting him on the ground over a dozen times, it's kind of insane. Um, and so I was really upset all weekend, just thinking like, was it something I said? What did I do? Should I have tried that? And really, just really just myself and the prosecutor and the investigator were all texting all weekend, like what the hell just happened? <laughs> Um, even so, you know, but I have to respect what the jury decided and not take it too personal. Um, but it's hard not to when, you know, that was your, that was your case and that was your responsibility. Um, so it's, it's hard to see the family because they had to watch that video too. And then to see the guy who did that leave the courtroom, like I can't imagine. Yeah. That. There's, they're hurting there. Yeah, I mean, oh. I could, I could tell the reaction from you. You're, you're still bothered by it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, that's it. But again, it goes back to every case stands on its own. Yeah. Every case is looked at mm -hmm. by those jurors and, or the judge. You know, everything is, yeah. it's a case by case deal and circumstances. And some guy again may get 30 years, right? Yeah. And then another guy get 50 for a murder. And then you got a guy that's get, that had a triple homicide and he gets 60. Yeah. It, you just never know. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like it's, it's, uh, you never know what a jury's going to do. And that's why I try not I try to tell families and people about plea deals. And like, it may seem like not enough, but you don't know what a jury and, you know, there are some great defense attorneys and the defense attorney did a fantastic job. I mean, he was doing his job and, um, you can't fault that. That's what our constitution allows for. Um, but I know I heard the victim, I think told some of the people that were there. It's like, I just, it's like, you just got killed all over again. And there's something I think I was telling a photographer that's been with our unit the last couple of months. If you've ever been to the courtroom in Dallas County, there are wooden pews and they kind of remind me of a church. And so if you think about that, you're in a church, a funeral of that person. And now you're in that same hard wooden pew to find out what's going to happen if you're going to get justice. And it's kind of interesting, like the parallels, I think, for that in some respects. It is. So it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, can you talk about tab seven and explain that, what that is? So basically we have these case files, our physical case files. Um, back in the day before they had electronic case files is pretty much 
That was it. And before I got to Homicide, they started doing this way of organizing it, which has 31 tabs. So the different tabs are like your offense report, autopsy report, search warrants, that kind of thing. Um, Tab seven is where the PCA, probable cause affidavit, and the arrest warrant goes. So the guys would always talk like, you know, how's your case going? Are you on tab seven yet? And so it became this like term of like, you know, you always want to get to tab seven. You want to solve the case. And so it became kind of an inside thing with Dallas. And we kind of adopted it as our own. So I have I love, no idea who started it. No, I liked it. I, so, so basically, for the listener, mm-hmm. for any case, whether it's a burglary, right, or, mm-hmm. or a simple assault mm-hmm. or a family violence assault, you start with the initial offense. There yeah. has to be an offense of a crime. Yeah. And then, like you're explaining the folders, to get to tab seven, which was your warrant, warrant of arrest and mm-hmm. your probable cause affidavit mm-hmm. that has to accompany that arrest warrant, mm-hmm. that is getting probable cause to all the many building blocks of, yeah. of uh, tabs one through six. Yeah. Seven is kind of the cherry on top of the case. Yeah. And that is when you establish probable cause and you can actually put an arrest warrant out for a suspect, which yeah. is that's your ultimate goal. Absolutely. Yeah. And like in all the tabs, you know, like there's investigative notes, like they're all, yeah. I don't know why seven is where the arrest warrant goes. It's a lucky number. I guess lucky maybe that seven. must be it. But, um, but yeah, and it's, you know, when you look at a case file, a good case file, you should be able to read it, especially in the investigative notes, tab 14, left to right and understand what happened. How did I get there? And so it's explaining your work from A to Z, like first this happened and then this happened. And a good detective, a good case file, you can pick it up in 10 years and, get justice for that family you know we have no statute of limitations which is why cold case murders are being solved 50 years later and so the idea is that if you can't solve it now you did enough good work that someone can pick up on it with a tip or whatever happens and get take it all the way home for you so that's part of being organized and being thorough no, they just solved the cold case here last week. I saw it from 89 that uh, they got yeah. from a DNA I off, think I off, saw a, that. off a bottle. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's and again, a, you don't know what's going to be the piece that's going to break it open. Well, you're reading the paper all the time of, of somebody that was killed in the in the 70s, and they're yeah. just now arresting some mm-hmm. 80-something-year-old guy that did it and got mm-hmm. away with it all these years, lived a whole life. Yeah, yeah. And then he finally has to pay the toll. Right? And then a lot of the cold case ones, they're already dead or they're yeah. in prison. Yeah. And, you know, and it's hard because there are some cases I have that are open. And, of course, I want to solve all my cases. But the reality is, especially in Dallas, you know, I get a dozen murders a year. And that is, like over double the recommended average by the FBI. And now that cases are so intensive in technology, digital evidence and everything, it's hard to work 12 murders a year, plus help your squad on other cases, plus go on overdose deaths, plus do suicide investigations. I mean, we're, we just were going all the time. And so getting back to old cases, it can be hard. Um, but I don't want to ever put the file away just be done with it forever if i can think of something that's new that i can try well you may another offense may occur unrelated to your offense that may break it all open yeah of course yeah like i said you never know who's going to get arrested who's going to know about that case or kept that text message or i still have that knife or whatever it is and it just kind of the dominoes fall from there so and sometimes, sometimes sadly, they they never fall and And yeah there's a lot of there's dallas has a has a uh it's littered with a bunch of whodunits. Yeah, we call those Pams. Pams? Yeah. What's that? Pure ass mystery. Pure, pure ass. Yeah, I love it. That's what I I actually may title this episode that. Pure ass mystery. Pure ass mystery. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Again, those are all the old heads way before my time. But yeah. Hey, it still stands. Absolutely. 
Can you talk about your nonprofit that you started? Yeah, so uh, a couple of detectives and I, we started this nonprofit called Tap 7 Corp. Um, a couple of years ago, everyone was like, we need some homicide shirts. And so I just got them made. And we, at first, we donated money to different organizations like Widows and Children's. And finally, we've been asking for stuff like different programs for software, um, Nighthawk, Cellhawk, Cellbrite, different things for phone mapping technology and social media um, analytics and also training for detectives and you know how it is with the government agency it's always kind of like well the budget and maybe not it's too expensive and so we decided well we're already making this stuff anyway for sale let's just use the money towards that and so we just formed it last year it's still relatively new Um, we're selling stuff this week actually at the crimes against children conference but the idea is to send detectives to different agencies to get more information and maybe get some licenses and my long-term goal is I would love to have a North Texas Homicide Association or DFW Homicide Association because you make these connections with people like in Fort Worth, but we don't share information like we should. And I think that's probably relevant to everyone listening who's in law enforcement is that if I had access to that county jail database or this or that, who knows what we could solve if we just worked together. But there's so many moving parts and we're all got so much going on. So the idea is to have an association where we can all have detectives from different agencies involved in it, um, up to date on the trends and different people going through the Metroplex and get some of these cases solved and get people where they belong and get some justice for these families. So I love it. Whenever we, uh, whenever this episode airs, I'm going to be putting out some information for your nonprofit yeah. and, and, uh, and, and get y'all a website going. Yeah. By yeah, then. We're, and, we're slow because yeah. we've been working so many cases, no, but yeah, we're definitely they, trying to get I'll a, help a Facebook anyway page or a website so we can get more information out there and get this thing off the ground a little bit. Get it growing, get traction. Yeah. It's already, I mean, this is, this is a, this is a type of offense and type mm-hmm. of, uh, in, the importance placed on this type of offense and mm-hmm. solving it and really networking like you talked about, because yeah. there's law enforcement agencies that, if you work together, you could do a lot more. Oh yeah. And some agencies have a little more time cause they don't get murders as much. And so yeah. they can do more things while we're taking care of our insane caseload. Um, but yeah, it's just about working together because at the end of the day, we all want the same thing and whoever gets the glory, I don't care. I just want to get what's right and get the person put away. So. All right. I have one final question for yeah. you. Um, what would you tell an officer that wants to become a detective? That's their dream to go to homicide. Mm-hmm. What do they need to work on and learn training wise what to attain that goal? What's gonna help them the most? So I teach at the Basic Academy with uh, general investigations and the homicide practical and I get that question a lot from rookies like how do I I wanna do what you do? I'm like, Okay, cool. I think the biggest thing is um, don't rush it. I think people are always like, How much longer until I can be in homicide? Can I go to SWAT or have a patrol? But I think it's like any good detective, any good SWAT, any good whatever you do was a good street cop because that's where you learn everything. That's when you learn how to talk to people, you learn how to problem solve, think outside the box, all that kind of thing. And so use the time you're in patrol to really master your craft and be really good at what you do. Um, Go to as many hot calls as possible. Avoid doing the shortcuts. Don't, you know, don't ride a 5'8 because you don't want to do that, that 25 or that, you know, that hard call, take all the hard calls. That's how you learn. And between yourself and your partner or somebody you trust, you can figure it out. So the more you do that kind of thing, the less intimidating it is. Um, 
you get good at patrol. People talk about you and your work ethic. If you're a hard charger, if you go after stuff, get some felonies all the time. People know. I mean, people in capers know who in patrol are badass officers. So we're like, man, get your stripes, promote, get up to homicide. Like we're telling them, you know, I can tell who's going to, who's going to end up there. And sometimes, um, and you know, it just comes down to building reputation and doing the work you have to like, you can't take the shortcuts and you can't, um, be a lazy ass officer and just write a desk for 20 years and expect to go to homicide. Cause you've, at that point you've said who you are and by what you're not doing. So, um, for me, I was really kind of nervous to go to South central, but I stayed when I could have left because the experience I got by kind of going to like a harder station, like the South stations, you, you learn so much just by reps. And, um, I saw the detectives more on, I asked them questions and I was that annoying officer. who was like, Hey, what are you going to do now? And like, what about this? And, you know, you can tell if a person has that mindset of a detective mindset because they just kind of see it. So I would just, and go to as much training as you possibly can. Um, I did a lot of training myself that I just paid for myself or found on my own. Um, if you wait for the department to cater your career, you're going to wait your whole time. So just make it happen yourself and promote as soon as you can. If you're in an agency that does that for purposes of getting detective. Yeah. That's a great answer. Um, your reputation matters. Oh, thank you. And, and your reputation is, is amazing. And I think the listeners, I think this is going to resonate with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you say you're not a very good, you don't like public speakings, but we're just in the very private confines of the Mm -hmm. DPD headquarters, but, but thousands of people are going to hear this (laughs) and that makes me nervous. No, don't be nervous. You did great. Well, thank Um, you. Thank you for your service and thank you for, thank you for helping or trying to help clean up this city streets. Thank the you. city of Dallas is lucky to have you in the property crime uh, unit that passed on you. <laughs> Shame on you. Well, I appreciate you having me, like I said. I mean, I, I didn't get a chance to work with you ever in patrol, but I always knew who you were. Everyone talked about Joe King at Southeast and Dope Chaser, and, and you have that reputation on the department as one of the best cops. I mean, truly, you are. And so I'm glad I get to work with you in this respect and the wellness program, hopefully, a little bit and that kind of thing, because you are, I think, what people don't understand is like, your generation and like the cops like you guys were like just you guys were like the varsity players I and mean, i don't know how to describe it like we looked up to you guys so much and still do and like you guys are like you're just badass so i appreciate well it. that means a lot uh coming from you thank you thank you the great detective isom atl fans thank you so much for your service thank you, thank you.